Last week we began a study of the passage that I read to you just a few minutes ago, which at that time I told you that apart from the miracle of our Lord's resurrection, this miracle that Jesus did of creating food to feed these thousands of people. It's the only miracle that is recorded in all four gospel accounts, the only one. And that is very significant because it indicates that although there are about 35 miracles that Jesus did that are mentioned in the New Testament, there is something so special, so wonderful about this particular supernatural event that God has made sure that his people are going to hear it four times. So what makes this miracle of feeding the multitude so special that it merits such attention above all the other miracles? What is it about this miracle? Well, interestingly, the actual miracle of multiplying the food doesn't seem to be the primary focus of the story. Although the entire passage revolves around the miracle, I want you to notice how Luke barely mentions the miracle itself. Notice verses 16 and 17. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied and the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, 12 baskets full. Now, What's so fascinating about this miracle is that Luke describes it in such an understated way, in such a a low-key manner. In just these few words, he blessed them, broke them, kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. Luke states what is no doubt one of the most remarkable displays of Christ's divine power. As I mentioned to you last Sunday, this miraculous creation of food was the largest demonstration of divine creative power since God created the world in six days and then restructured the earth after the global flood. And yet, as astounding as this miracle was, Luke doesn't even give us the details employed by Jesus in doing this creative miracle. He just states that Jesus broke the five loaves of bread and the two fish, and he just kept multiplying them, giving them out to the disciples, who then in turn handed them out to the multitudes. That's all he tells us. But you see, Luke doesn't need to reveal the details of how this miracle was accomplished because how the miracle was done is not the primary point of this passage of Scripture. The primary issue here isn't how Jesus did the miracle, but rather why Jesus did the miracle. That's to say that the real message of this passage lies in Christ's purpose and his reason for doing such a remarkable miracle. Now, it's obvious. It's obvious that the Lord fed all these people because they were hungry and they were in need of food and he is merciful and compassionate. However, the primary reason he performed this miracle was to teach his 12 apostles some very important and valuable lessons about being an effective servant, about how to serve him. And this becomes quite clear when we put all four gospel accounts together so that we get the big picture of what was going on at this time. And so as we noted last Sunday in our study, Luke informs us that just prior 
to this miracle, Christ's apostles had returned from their first missionary work without him, without the Lord being physically present. Jesus had sent them out alone on a short-term missions trip into the area of Galilee and they were to preach the kingdom, they were to heal the sick, they were to cast out demons. This was their very first taste of serving him because prior to this, he had done all the work. They had just observed. But this is their first taste of serving him because why? Because Jesus was preparing them to be his official representatives when the time came for him to return to the Father. And that time was not very far off. Because Matthew, in his gospel account, tells us that just before his men returned from this mission's work, that Jesus received word that John the Baptist had been murdered by Herod. Now this news about John's death, it seems to have prompted the Lord to begin to focus more on training his disciples because it indicated to Jesus that his own death was coming soon and therefore he needed to prepare his men to intensify his efforts in training them so they would know how to carry on his ministry after he was gone back to the Father in glory. And that's why we read in verse 10 of Luke 9 that taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. As the other gospel accounts inform us, this withdrawal was to a very lonely, isolated spot in not the town of Bethsaida, but in the vicinity of Bethsaida, apart and away from the town. And he did this because, as I've already mentioned, he wanted to spend time alone with his men. This was really a retreat. It was intended to be a retreat with his 12 men in order to give them some very important lessons, valuable lessons about serving him. While they had experienced, it's true, their their first taste of serving him, he now wanted to take them deeper in training them to be, note this, effective servants. Not just his servants, but effective servants. And folks, that's really the primary point. It's the primary purpose of these verses here in Luke 9. See, the feeding of the multitude and the events that surround this miracle, they are merely a means to teach his disciples some key lessons about being useful servants, effective servants for him. And they're practical lessons, and they're practical lessons for us as well. So what makes this such an important and timeless passage of Scripture, and one that God intentionally drives home to us four, four times, is that there is a right way to serve the Lord, and there is a wrong way to serve the Lord. And this passage instructs us in the right way to serve Him. So understand that effective service for Christ, it doesn't just happen because you want to serve him or you jump into a ministry or because you have a desire to do something for him. Effective service for Jesus takes place when we follow his instructions about how to serve him. And this passage of scripture contains some of those instructions and they are for us. You see, lessons about being an effective servant Lessons that Jesus was so intent on teaching his first disciples, he's just as intent on teaching us, his present-day disciples. That's true, and I've said this before, that certainly not not every Christian is called to serve Christ in a full-time vocational way, but because every believer in Christ, note this, is a full-time Christian. There are no part-time Christians. Every Christian is a full-time Christian. We are all called to be active in some type 
of specific ministry for our Lord. Now last week we discovered two specific lessons that Jesus taught his apostles about being effective servants. And I'm only going to mention them briefly just to remind you of these important principles. But our focus today will be on the third lesson that Jesus taught his men about being effective servants. So as you recall, the first lesson that Jesus taught his disciples about being effective servants is that number one, effective servants take time off for rest. Verse 10, when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. Although Luke doesn't tell us why, why Jesus withdrew with his disciples to a secluded place, as I pointed out last week, the gospel writer Mark does, another gospel writer, in his account of the same event, Mark chapter 6, verses 31 and 32 say, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. And then, and then Mark adds in a parenthetical statement, for there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to rest. They went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. So here we learn that these men, and Jesus knew this and understood this, they needed to get a break from the intensity of ministry. They had been involved in the work in Galilee for perhaps weeks, who knows, maybe even a month, a month and a half, maybe two months, we're we're just not told. But it was some time that they were involved and they were tired, they needed a break from the draining intensity of ongoing ministry so that they could just relax, spend some time alone with the Lord, and just sit down and enjoy a meal together without being interrupted as people brought their problems, their needs to them. Now, what was true for our Lord's busy first century disciples, it's certainly true for us today, even, maybe even more so because of the hectic pace of our lives. Anyone who's ever served the Lord knows that continuous ministry to others can be just exhausting. It can be emotionally draining. And so Jesus has given us this important principle for us to follow. He's instructed us that his servants are to periodically take time off, to unwind, to rest, to relax, to spend time alone with him in his word and prayer, to enjoy the unrushed fellowship of other believers. This is really a critical key to remaining effective in ministry. Otherwise, it is just too easy to grow stale, to become excessively tired, to be agitated over people and their circumstances. So, listen to the Lord. Obey what he is saying. Stay fresh by taking a break every once in a while from your labors of ministry. Now, the second lesson Jesus taught his disciples about effective service is that effective servants not only take some time off so that they can get some rest, but they also have compassion for other people. There is a balance to all of this. We see the balance in verse 11. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him and welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Now what we learn here is that even though Jesus and his disciples were in need of a break from caring for others, when the Lord saw all of these people waiting for him on the shore of of the Sea of Galilee when he arrived in that area of Bethsaida, he put his own concerns for rest aside and according to Mark chapter 6 verse 34, feeling compassion 
for the people, he ministered to them by teaching them about the kingdom of God and healing those who were ill. You see, although Jesus wanted his men to understand the importance of periodically taking breaks from ministry, he also wanted them to understand that being a servant, being a true servant means that they won't always have the luxury of choosing the time to take a break from ministry. And the reason for this is because those who serve others in his name must have what he has, and that is a heart of compassion, a heart of mercy, a heart that cares about others and compels them to minister even when it is inconvenient for them, even when they are tired, even when it intrudes upon their schedules, their agendas. In other words, when we really care about others, we have to set aside our own desires and our own inclinations for a break because the pressing needs of people dictate that we help them. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't take a break from ministry. Obviously, the Lord just taught that you should. It simply means that there will be times when you'll have to postpone those breaks because compassion will drive you to minister to the urgent and pressing needs of others. Listen, if you want to serve Christ effectively, and I believe all Christians want to serve him effectively, then you simply have to care about other people. A loveless Christian walk is what Paul calls a noisy gong. Somebody who just talks the talk and doesn't walk the walk of love. Paul said, you're just a noisy, annoying sound. That's 1 Corinthians 13. He goes on to say, whatever he did for the Lord, if he didn't do it in love, he was a big nothing. Think about that. Think about that. That's what we're hearing here in the words of Philippians 2. You have to do with humility of mind. You have to regard one another as more important than yourselves and not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And this will only happen, and I emphasize it will only happen if you are growing in Christ. And how do you grow in Christ? You grow by applying the Word of God to your life, not simply knowing Theology, but applying the word of God to your life because that's the only way that Christ's compassion and all of his character attributes will be cultivated in you. But if this is not the case and you're not growing like you should by applying the word of God to your life, then you may find yourself being very diligent in service, very disciplined in service, doing your work of ministry, working hard, but simply not caring for those you serve, having, as I said, a loveless kind of ministry so that service for others becomes nothing more than a sense of duty without a heart. It's a mere obligation, even a burden, just a cold and mechanical work that you carry on routinely. That's all. That's wrong. It's not only wrong, it's sinful. It's sinful because the New Testament calls us, commands us to have hearts of compassion towards one another. Hearts of compassion as we minister to each other out of love and genuine concern. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians in Colossians 3, 12 and 13. He said, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, 
Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. We are to love others with compassion as he has loved us with compassion. Folks, it's important that you never look upon those you minister to as just an inconvenience of your time and energy. Jesus didn't minister like that. He ministered out of loving compassion and he calls us to do exactly the same thing. So thus far we've learned two lessons that Jesus taught the apostles about being an effective servant and he said take time off to rest and have compassion for people. And now as we see the passage unfolding we see a third and a final lesson that Jesus taught the apostles about being effective servants and that is effective servants must have confidence in him. They must believe in him. They must have faith in him. Verse 12. Now the day was ending and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we're in a desolate place. Apparently Jesus had been healing the sick and teaching the people all day. And now as we read in this verse, We read that it was late in the day and the disciples were concerned about the people's need for food, for nourishment. Now the Apostle John in his gospel narrative of the same incident, he tells us that the time of year when this miracle took place was Passover, which means that it was probably the month of April. And in April, in Israel, the sun sets about 6 p.m. So when we read here that the day was ending, Luke is telling us that the time was the late afternoon before sunset, probably about 4.30 p.m. And because it was late in the afternoon with only about an hour and a half of daylight left before it became dark outside, the Lord's apostles approached Jesus and more than suggest and more than advise him, it appears that they speak rather brashly to him to the point of being impertinent to the point of being rude. This is the Lord of glory. But they tell him, they don't suggest, they tell him to send the crowds away because they were in an isolated area in Galilee. Miles from any town of considerable size where food would be available for all these people. So they tell the Lord, they tell him to dismiss the people before it gets dark So they can go to the surrounding villages, go to the surrounding farms in the area to buy some food. Now, although the apostles were somewhat nervy and disrespectful in speaking to Jesus this way, it does appear that they were beginning to get the lesson, to learn the lesson about having some compassion for people. In spite of how they spoke to Jesus, they do seem to have a very real, a very genuine concern for the welfare, physical welfare, of all these people. And rightly so. After all, these men had been observing Jesus demonstrate his mercy all day long in meeting the the needs for these people. They had watched him do that, to meet the health needs of these people. And now they see a need. They see a need that the people, they need to get some nourishment. And so very compassionately, they tell the Lord that he should send the people away so that they can get some food to eat, lodging as well. Now, while they may have been learning the lesson of compassion, they were failing miserably, terribly in another area. 
in an area that the Lord knew they needed help in, and that is in the area of their faith, their trust in Him, their confidence in Him to accomplish anything that He chose to accomplish, even the miraculous. So just think about this. These men had been with Jesus for all of his ministry, which at this point is about two and a half years into his ministry. They had witnessed his many, many, many miracles of healing. They had seen his ability to cast out demons from possessed people. They saw him supernaturally calm a violent storm on the Sea of Galilee just by speaking a word of rebuke. They had even seen him raise back to life the dead son of the widow of Nain as well as the daughter of Jairus. In fact, they had just come back. As you know, they just had come back from their missions trip where they, where they had personally experienced the Lord's miraculous power to enable them, mere common men from Galilee, the ability to do supernatural acts of casting out demons and healing people. And yet with all of these fresh miracles on their minds, here they were, out in the middle of nowhere, telling the Lord to send the people away so that they could get some food. But it never dawns on them that he who did all these miracles could miraculously feed all these people. It just never crosses their minds that he who turned the the water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee could now create some food to feed thousands of people. Now talk about a disconnect. A disconnect between what they knew to be true about Jesus and how they dealt with life's problems. This is a disconnect. And the Lord knew that these men had this disconnect. He knew that faith in in him to do the seemingly impossible was lacking in the thinking of the apostles because throughout their time of discipleship training, Jesus had told them on a number of occasions that they had a problem. They were men of little faith. He kept saying that to them. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, we read that when These men were so scared because they thought they were going to drown on the Sea of Galilee in that violent storm. Jesus said to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Now, he knew they had faith because they believed in him, and faith is a gift from God. No one can muster up faith in and of themselves. He didn't say, you men of no faith, you men of little faith. I've given you faith. Why is it so little? Again, in Matthew 16, verse 8, on yet another occasion when they were clueless as to what he was talking about, he referred to them again. He said, you men of little faith. In fact, the Lord's apostles were so weak in their faith that in Matthew 17, verse 17, after coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration and hearing that his men were not able to cast a demon out of someone, Jesus sharply rebuked the disciples. He called them an unbelieving and perverted generation. This wasn't said to the crowd. It appears it was said to his disciples. Folks, these apostles of Jesus, they had a serious problem with lack of trusting him, with their faith. And so the Lord sets out now to teach them a lesson about having confidence in him. He wants to stretch their faith. And he begins this lesson by rejecting their advice to send the people away so that they could get some food. Notice what we read in verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. 
Instead of listening to the apostles, Jesus tells them to do something that must have just utterly shocked them. He tells them, he tells these 12 men, you give thousands of people, you give them something to eat. Now, why would Jesus say this to them? Obviously, they didn't have enough food to feed all these people, which numbered into the thousands. So, why would he tell them that they should give them something to eat? Well, listen closely, because what you are about to learn is really the major point behind this miracle that the Lord is about to do. This is the major lesson. This is where he has brought them to, to learn this. From John's gospel, we learn that earlier in the day, Jesus had brought up this very issue about feeding so many people, even before the apostles approached him. Here's what we read in John chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Now, apparently, Philip was the disciple who was placed in charge of the food and the supplies. And so Jesus naturally directed his question to him. How are we going to feed so many people, Philip? But the Apostle John, notice, he is quick to tell us that the Lord only asked Philip this question in order to test him because he knew what he was going to do. It wasn't because the Lord didn't know. He asked Philip, knowing exactly what he was about to do, he asked Philip to test him. You see, from the outset, Christ's plan was always to multiply the food, miraculously multiply the food to feed this large crowd. But watch this. He was testing Philip in order to stretch Philip's faith so that Philip would realize that nothing is impossible with Jesus and that the Lord is capable, was capable, is capable, will always be capable by himself of feeding all of these thousands of people. But amazingly, folks, this never dawns on Philip. It never crosses the man's mind. Notice how he responds to the Lord's question about how are we going to feed all these people. John chapter 6, verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. So instead of saying to Jesus, Lord, why are you asking me this? I've seen you do miracle after miracle. So feeding all these people, that's nothing. That's nothing to you. You're God. There is nothing impossible with you. Just do another miracle and feed all these people. Instead of saying something like that, words to that effect, Philip takes out his little Israeli-made calculator. He punches in the numbers and he says, it won't work. It's impossible to feed so many people. It just doesn't compute, Lord, because even if we had 200 denarii, we couldn't feed all of these people. Now, a denarius was a normal day's wage back then. So 200 denarii, the plural, was about six to seven months of a man's salary. So what Philip is telling the Lord is that based on his calculations, not even half a year's salary would be enough to purchase food for so many people. And regardless, they didn't have this kind of money and they didn't have this kind of supplies with them. So how much did they have? What did they have? Well, apparently Andrew, 
who was the brother of Peter and another one of the apostles, he heard this exchange between Jesus and Philip. So he speaks up and here's what he says in John chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? So Andrew tells the Lord that he has discovered a boy in the crowd who has five barley loaves of bread. They would be more like our little pancakes or or little biscuits. Don't think of, of five large loaves of bread, but more like biscuits. And also two fish. It means two dried fish. But like Philip, he concludes that this certainly isn't enough to feed all these thousands of people. Now, folks, think about the spiritual dullness revealed in the responses of Philip and Andrew to Christ's question about how they were going to feed so many people. Remember, remember who these men are. These men, along with the other apostles, they had just returned from a missionary ministry involving miracles that the Lord had given them the power to do. So miracles were fresh on their minds. This isn't something in their distant past. It was fresh on their minds and now this entire day they had been watching Jesus do miracle after miracle in healing the sick. And yet, yet when he turns to them and says, hey guys, we have a lot of people to feed. What do you think we ought to do? All they can think of is, well, we don't have enough money. We don't have enough food to feed all these people. It just can't be done. All we have is a little kid's lunch. That's it. So I said a few minutes ago, talk about not connecting the dots. These men had been in the presence of the eternal Son of God, God Almighty, and yet it never, never seems to have occurred to them that the one who had performed so many previous miracles could miraculously feed this huge crowd of people. See, what they should have said to Jesus is something like, Lord, You can do anything because you're God. Even though we don't have the money, we don't have enough supplies to feed this large crowd, that's no problem for you, Jesus. None at all, because you are the Almighty One and there is nothing impossible with you. Now that's what they should have said. See, what Jesus wanted to teach His men is that they could trust Him to do what was humanly impossible. He had purposely placed them in an impossible situation by telling them to feed this large crowd of people so that they would look to him to do what they were incapable of doing, feeding a massive crowd of people with just very limited supplies. Folks, the lesson Jesus was impressing upon his small faith disciples is that those who serve him must have confidence in him. Instead of looking at their circumstances through their own eyes and their very limited perspectives, they needed to look at their circumstances from a divine perspective and then trust Christ to bring about a solution to their dilemma. But are we any different from these men? Sadly, no. No, we are often just like them, just like them. Though in the past the Lord has demonstrated his ability to deliver you, to deliver us from what seemed at the time an impossible situation, an impossible predicament, when he puts you, when he puts us 
in another new impossible type of situation, so often we falter in trusting Him. Listen, the reason God puts us in these very tight spots where He gives us tasks that are impossible for us to do is simply to stretch our faith by helping us to recognize how completely inadequate we are So that we will turn to Him, the all-sufficient One, and trust Him to do what we can't possibly do, what we can't possibly fix. Years ago, Bible teacher Alexander McLaren said these very important words. He said, it is often our God-given duty to attempt tasks to which we are conspicuously inadequate in the confidence that He who gives them has laid them on us to drive us to himself and there to find sufficiency. The best preparation of his servants for their work in the world is the discovery that their own stores are small. That's exactly why the Lord told his apostles, you go feed all these thousands of people because he wanted them to see that they were totally inadequate to meet such a need so that they would turn to him And see that he could meet that need. As someone has so wisely put it, they said, when we understand this is our responsibility to feed the multitude and tell him we don't have the resources, we're ready for his empowerment. He wants to bring you to a place like that where you trust him because you know that you can't possibly do it. That's not how the Lord's apostles responded. Look again at verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. Now, I want you to notice their little snarky remark at the end. And I know what snarky means. I'm using it on purpose. They said, we only have five loaves of bread and a couple of small fish, unless unless you want us to go buy food for all these thousands of people. Folks, they're being sarcastic. They're being sarcastic. This is a statement of sarcasm. It's a statement of mockery. They are actually mocking the Lord for telling them to feed all of these people. It's as if they're saying to him, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Feed all these people. Why don't we just go purchase the food ourselves for them? You see, instead of recognizing that Jesus was just testing them to stretch their faith, showing them that they were totally inadequate for the situation and needed to trust him, they resort to sarcasm that reveals not only how spiritually dense and thick and dull they were, but also how small their faith was. But as I said earlier, we're often just like them. This is why this passage is so important. We're often just like them because we know the truth about Jesus Christ, believing in the doctrines of grace as we do here at Lakeside, we have the correct biblical view when it comes to the sovereignty of God, knowing that his word says that he rules over every detail of life. There are no mistakes with the Lord. There are no errors with him. Everything is planned out by him. His word says he rules over every detail of life so that whatever problems, whatever trials, whatever pains he brings into our lives, our theology, our biblical theology tells us that he has brought them into our lives to mature us spiritually, to make us more Christ-like in our character. And yet knowing this, Knowing the truth about God, knowing the truth about Christ, knowing the truth about His sovereignty, how often we fail to apply our theology 
to life's problems. So that like the apostles, there is this disconnect between our theology and how we react to the crises and trials of life. You see, it's very possible to be a Calvinist in your theology, but an Arminian, those are those who reject Calvinism, it's very possible to be a Calvinist in your theology, but an Arminian in the way you live. In fact, more than possible, it happens far too often. That's a disconnect that needs to be corrected. It needs to be connected. Listen, you may be going through a very difficult time right now. Perhaps you're going through a severe trial and you just don't know how to solve it. You don't have the answers. It's so bad, you don't know what to do. Instead of fretting and worrying and being frustrated, understand that this is actually a good place to be. Because out of this crisis, the Lord wants to teach you to have confidence in Him, not your own ability to solve it. You can't. But He can. And He wants to stretch your faith. He wants you to see how inadequate you are, how weak you are, and how strong and sufficient He is. This is precisely the lesson that the apostles needed to learn. And this is why as Luke continues to unfold the story, he tells us that Jesus gave them an incredibly powerful demonstration of his power to solve their problem of feeding so many people. Look at verses 14 through 17. This is actually the miracle. We read, For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, Have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. They did so, and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces, which they had left over, were picked up, 12 baskets full. So continuing the thought of the last verse about how impossible it was for the apostles to purchase food for so many people, since there were about 5,000 men there, and I said that doesn't include the women and children, so the crowd may have been 10, 15, even 20,000 people. Luke then tells us that Jesus now demonstrates his power to do what was humanly impossible. He did it by telling the apostles to have the people sit down in groups of 50. This would make it easier for them to distribute the food. Next, he took the five loaves of bread and the two fish. He looked up to heaven. He gave thanks to the Father for the food. And he proceeded to break the bread and the fish, which began to miraculously multiply in his hands. They just kept multiplying and multiplying. Jesus just kept creating new bread and new fish and kept giving it out to the apostles who kept distributing it to the people until enough food was created and distributed to feed all of these thousands of people. Folks, this is a remarkable miracle. And even though, as I told you earlier, Luke just describes this miracle in such a modest, understated way, it really, really is a stunning display of God's creative power. And it demonstrates that Jesus Christ is Lord of creation. Concerning this remarkable miracle, Ken Hughes wrote this. He said, this miracle was not out of nothing, but it might as well have been because material creation flowed from his hands just as the universe itself had. 
And then he quotes Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. This is our God. This is our Christ. But in addition to this miracle, I want you to notice something else that's important. It's easy to overlook this, but it's important. Not only did the Lord miraculously create food to feed this crowd of thousands, but according to verse 17, all the people who ate, all of them, note this, they were satisfied. And they were satisfied because Jesus created so much food that everybody got enough to eat so that there were 12 baskets of leftovers which the apostles picked up so that nothing we read was wasted. You see, the leftover food was enough to feed the 12 apostles with each apostle getting a basket of food for themselves. So not only did Jesus provide enough food to feed this massive crowd of people, but he was so thoughtful, he didn't leave the disciples out. He made sure that his 12 servants were taken care of too. He provided enough food for them. Now the fact that everyone was satisfied with this meal, it indicates how generous Jesus had been with them. See, Jesus didn't give them just a little snack to ward off some hunger pains. He filled them with a huge meal that totally satisfied them so that they were no longer hungry. And I say that this tells us a wonderful truth about our God. It tells us that he's generous. He's generous. He not only provides for us, but he abundantly provides for us. You see, the Lord is never penny-pinching. He's never tight-fisted. When he gives, he gives liberally. He gives open-handedly. Not only is he generous in meeting our physical needs, but he is incredibly generous in meeting our spiritual needs We don't just have salvation. We have in the words of the writer to the Hebrews so great a salvation. We have a fantastic salvation in that he has given us so much out of his riches. Listen to what Ephesians 1 verses 7 and 8 say about God's abundant generosity in our salvation. In him, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. He not only bestowed his grace upon us in forgiving our sins, but he lavished his grace upon us. The word lavish meaning to overflow, to cause to abound. Have you ever experienced his lavish grace? Have you ever experienced the grace of God in Christ to save your soul for all of eternity? That's the so great a salvation that we have. He has provided a rich and wonderful and lavish salvation based upon his substitutionary death on the cross for sinners. He himself, the Holy One, was punished and judged in the place of sinners like us Those who repent of their sin, those who recognize their sin, turn from their sin, turn to Him, place their trust in Him as the sole, sole basis for their salvation. What does He do? He lavishes upon you His grace in forgiving all of your sins. So great a salvation. If you've never experienced this abundant, generous, lavish grace, then I urge you, as I do every week, but I urge you again, 
to turn to him today, to trust him. I know some of you hear the word and it just doesn't penetrate. You know the truth, you just never turn to Christ. You are holding on to your own lives and you need to turn away from your sin and your life and turn to Christ and trust him. If you want to speak to someone about this, then I would just encourage you to see me as we close the service. But if you already know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then learn the great lesson that the Lord was teaching his apostles, that there isn't anything impossible for you. I don't care what your situation is now. I don't care how difficult it is. I don't care how bleak your problem, your situation, your circumstance might be. He has sovereignly, he has sovereignly placed you in that situation in order to stretch your faith so that you would trust him to bring about a solution that only he can do and then he gets the praise. So if you want to be an effective servant, then have confidence in him to do what only he can do and you can't do. With Christ, nothing is impossible. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture. Lord, it's convicting. It is so convicting because so often we are just like these men, spiritually thick and dull. We may know our theology. We may be well-read on a lot of books. We may be able to teach these things, but Lord, to apply them to our daily existence in the worlds that we live in, in our, in our marriages, in our families, at work with other people. Lord, that's what we need. That's what we need. So we pray, I pray that you would show us how inadequate we are, but how wonderfully adequate and sufficient you are. May we trust you. May we have greater faith in you because you are the great God of the universe. May we learn all these lessons and apply them to our lives. And Lord, we pray for anyone here or anyone watching by live stream who has never turn to you. They're clinging to their sin. They're clinging to their lives. We pray that they will turn away and turn to Christ and be saved today. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.